welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. All right. Hebrews 1, 10 to 14. Y también, y también dice, Señor, tú fundaste la tierra en el principio, y los cielos son obras de tus manos. Verse 11. Ellos perecerán, pero tú permaneces para siempre. Todos ellos se desgastarán como un vestido, los enrollas como con un manto, y quedarán cambiados. Pero tú eres el mismo, y tus años no tendrán fin. Verse 13. Dios jamás le dijo a ninguno de los ángeles, siéntate a mi derecha hasta que ponga a tus enemigos por estrado de tus pies. ¿Y acaso no son todos ellos espíritus ministradores enviados para servir a quienes serán los herederos de la salvación? Esta es la palabra de Dios. This is the word of God. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you continue to do in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would speak clearly to our hearts, that you would change our lives today, that we would leave here knowing Jesus better than when we came in, understanding him better, and Lord, desiring to apply our lives in a way that would be glorifying to him. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Morning. How's everybody doing? Great. Awesome. I didn't hear anybody say terrible, so that's good. Um, so my name's Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. I'm excited you're here. We have been preaching through the book of Hebrews. It's funny, I was telling someone this morning, like, I've never pre- actually preached through the book of Hebrews before in all my 20-ish years of pastoring, and it's been really awesome. Um, great book. We've entitled it The Greatest, and the concept, the overall concept behind the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is supreme over everything, Right? And oftentimes we don't live this way. We'll challenge it a little bit. We might uh, put some like little idols that are in place, and we've talked about that a little bit. But last week we mentioned this, or the author of Hebrews started talking about the, the supremacy of Jesus over angels. Um, whether or not that is actually like a temptation for you or not, we mentioned that a little bit last week. It's this concept of saying the things that are spiritual, the things that I don't really understand, these things where you know, we'll hear people say, well, I'm not really religious, I'm spiritual. It's an attempt to take something that maybe we don't know. It could be mystic, it could be however you want to define it, spiritual, and say, I'm putting this above something else, or I'm putting this above the truth of Jesus for a Christ follower. And so I don't know that anybody in here worships angels. If you do, we need to have a little chat. Um, They're not what you think you are. And we started kind of the defense of Jesus being greater than angels. And so for our context, one of the things I want to challenge is Jesus is greater than spirituality. Um, So we're going to kind of dive into a little bit deeper as the author continues his dissertation on why Jesus is greater than angels or why Jesus is greater than spirituality. And it begins with something really, really cool. So if you haven't turned in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, Starting at verse 10, I'll be reading this in English. And it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. I am not an astrophysicist. And if you know me, you know that, okay? Um, I'm not an astrophysicist. I, I have a biology degree. Like, my undergrad is in biology, like human biology. So I hadn't studied a whole lot of astronomy. To be really honest, I'm kind of like my daughter. She's like, I hate space things. Other than Star Wars and Star Trek, I don't really study a lot of astronomy. I am still, and so I say this because I am still overwhelmed with the idea that we are on a big ball that's floating in space. (laughs) Now, an astrophysicist can attempt in their greatest way possible to explain to me how all of that works. But let me explain my simplicity of science, even though I have a science degree, is I still get infatuated watching airplanes fly. Because I, don't, I get it, but I don't, right? And so this is the easiest way for me to kind of associate this overwhelming understanding of how the universe is actually held together. Why there's this rock that inhabit, where we inhabit, and it has this crazy way of moving around other rocks that help sustain us, and how it just holds there, and how we don't go flying off. And I understand like all of the terminology, but when you process through it, it should blow your mind a little bit. 
Like, I don't know if you spend time with this, and if you spend too much time with it, you'll go crazy, right? But when you think about just the miracle of this ball floating and not getting too close to the sun or too far away from the sun, it's staying exactly where it's supposed to be, what, what is going on, right? This verse, it, it causes me to feel overwhelmed by not just the sovereignty of God, but the overwhelming power. Scripture tells us that he sustains the universe by just his word. Meaning, okay, so if you've ever had a pet, like we have a dog, I have, we have a, a, a dog that's named Darcy, and it's a Aussie, a, like a miniature Aussie, right? And so they have a lot of energy. And one of the first things you have to teach a dog, especially if you're gonna be in the city, is sit, stay, right? Now, I always feel bad teaching a dog to sit and stay because I don't sit and stay. <laughs> but you say sit, stay, why are we doing this? So, if you think of how difficult it can be at times to get an active dog to sit and stay, think about the, the universe and think about the Lord literally looking at the planets and going, sit, stay. You're only allowed to turn this way. You're only allowed to take this much time to go in your, in your orbit and stay. And that's all it takes. Sit, stay, just stay. And it keeps working. It says in this verse, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. When I think of a foundation, I think of something that's sturdy and strong. Well, you want something sturdy and strong, right? I mean, when we know that something's built on a foundation that isn't, if any of you have ever tried, like, you know, do-it-yourself projects around the house or wherever, and you've always wanted to cut corners, and maybe you've cut a corner to where you're building something or you're doing something and the foundation wasn't very firm and then you come back later and you're frustrated because you thought it would hold but it didn't, right? Foundations are intended to be strong. They're intended to last. They're intended to be something that's going to be permanent. The longer that foundation holds, the longer whatever's built on top of it will hold. This foundation is supposed to, you know, and I'm looking at this description of he, the foundation of the world. The foundation is what? There's not like this ball of the earth is sitting on a pedestal that is sitting on something else. It's literally floating there. What is the actual foundation of the earth? It's God himself. It's his word. It's, and, and we go back to Genesis and the, the, the story of the creation. It says that he spoke it into existence. He, he created out of nothing. He literally was able to go earth foundation and it just stayed there. And when he talks about the Lord, he's talking about Jesus. We know that we've already studied this concept that Jesus is there at creation, that all things on the earth were created for him and through him. That through Jesus, this foundation of the world, this ball is sitting there and it's firm. And the heavens are the work of your hands. There's a whole lot of different words for heavens, the heavens in Scripture. Um, heaven can be a place, right? It can be a specific place. It can be the place that, you know, from a very like simplistic understanding, it's that place that we go, when I die, I hope that I'm going here, right? So it's this place that we picture as perfection and something better than what we live in. So it can be a place. It can also be the heavens, meaning just looking at the sky, looking at all that's around us. Being overwhelmed, if you go to a place where you can just see stars and it just seems to go on forever. Or you've had those moments where you've looked up and there's so many stars that you just feel almost insignificant. That can be the heavens. The heaven is also described as the place where God manifests himself very clearly in a specific location. Jesus, in teaching us to pray, says that we should be praying for things here as if they're in heaven, which means we have, through Christ, the ability to actually show people what heaven can look like in a very small way. 
In this specific passage, it's referring to the expanse of everything that we see. That He created it all. Let me read this again. And the heavens are the work of your hands. That you guys are, I, I'm, I'm dating myself here, and I don't even know if you'll remember, but there, was this, there used to be this thing called Light Bright. And when I look at it now, I'm like, this is the dumbest toy. It's really simplistic, right? It's basically like a box, and it had a light bulb in the back of it, and, a, and it was all dark. And then you turned on the light bulb, and you would put like a dark piece of paper like over the screen, and then you would take these little, I don't even know what you call them, they were pegs, and they were kind of translucent, and they were different colors, and you would stick them into this board and make pictures, and they would light up. It's very simple. Right? It, it's kind of like um, Battleship meets art. Okay, if that, if that helps. So there's this thing, Lightbright, and I picture, like, once again, simplistic mind here. I picture God looking at the universe as like Lightbright as he's creating it, and he's literally just going, we're going to put a star right there, and we're going to put a star right there, and we're going to put a star right there. He's literally just, yeah, that looks good, right? It's overwhelming to think about. And the reason I want you to consider the overwhelming nature of what is being stated here is because remember, the whole defense of the author of Hebrews is to help us understand that the God that can actually say stay for the foundations of the world and the God who can light bright stars into the sky cares enough about you to one and desire a personal relationship with you. This goes beyond just, oh, I met a new person and I have a friend. Like, that's the individual, that's the person, this is the God that we're referring to. This God that can do all of that cares about you. That's overwhelming to me. I think I mentioned this last week, but I've been processing so much through it because there's so much that goes on in life that feels so stressful. It's always something. Like, I ran into somebody the other day, and they're like, I'm like, how's, how's life treating you? And they're like, well, I like, solved this problem, and now I'm on to this one. And I'm like, it's always something. There's always something that can draw our attention away from experiencing the joy that we desire and need in Christ, taking this pressure and just feeling like life is so burdensome and there's always something that we have to do. And we understand that theologically. We live in a sin-cursed world and sin-cursed bodies. The world's a mess. There's always problems. But do you realize that in Christ, you know the creator of the universe? Like all of the problems that we think about that are so heavy and so burdensome and, and we'll take something so minute and make it so huge. And God's like, stay to the earth. I was explaining, I, I know I brought this up last week, I was explaining to a person some of the issues that I'd been going through and some of the things and, and, and he, he listened really well as a mentor and and he said, man, this is, you know, hey, we'll get through it and just keep praying. And he goes, but you know, Jesus isn't sweating any of it, right? And what is he doing? He's attempting to draw me back to the realization of the God that I'm actually dealing with. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then here we go. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. We think of the foundations of the world that are being described. We, we look at the universe, the vastness of it. We think about the magnitude of the power of a being that can see all of that function and flow for that moment of just stay, the foundations of the world, for the, the heavens that he's created. 
And he says, all of that will go away. It's not permanent. It's not permanent. We, we under, I mean, we understand that from like a simplistic nature. We, we understand that what we, you know, we, we deal with things like death and we're like, okay, we know that one day you will die. It's hard to process that at times because it's hard to, to think what is it going to be like when I'm not here. But we know that everything that we see, everything that we touch, every relationship that we have with a person, it's all temporary. It's important, but it's temporary. The vastness of the universe, it's temporary. I don't know what's, I mean, we have pictures in scripture of maybe what's to come afterwards, but to understand what that actually means is very difficult. But everything around us, you think, okay, everything that's included in what we stress about so much is temporary. The analogy here is God has the ability and will change the world like we change clothes. It it almost sounds disrespectful to describe it that way because we just talked about the magnitude of what the universe is. And God is giving us a picture of it being like, yeah, I can change my shirt anytime I want. It's temporary. It says in in this analogy that he just kind of rolls it up and throws it away, right? But you are the same and your years have no end. From a theological standpoint, we call this characteristic of God immutability. Immutability means an inability to change. God is always who he is. He is always who he claims to be. He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. You're like, wait, I've seen scriptures where it says it looks like God changed his mind. God's sovereign. Nothing surprises him. When he makes a promise, it's guaranteed. Scripture says that God can't lie. He never says anything false. The God who created and set the foundations of the world is the same God that we pray to and worship through Christ now. He doesn't evolve. He doesn't learn. He doesn't say, oh, I'm on this experiential kind of moment where I'm watching what's happening and I'm learning as we go. He doesn't get concerned. When I say he's not surprised, he doesn't ever go, oh man, I didn't see Kevin doing that. Nothing ever changes. Um, We divide God's characteristics into two major categories in theology. So we're going to get a little fancy here for a second. We call them the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. And I'm going to make this real simple for you. Communicable comes from the term communicate. The communicable attributes of God are are the characteristics of God that he passes on to us, being made in his image, that he can communicate to us very clearly and that we can understand. The incommunicable attributes of God are the things that he talks about, but that we go, (laughs) I don't know. Right? He has several incommunicable attributes. One of them is immutability because we don't understand anything that doesn't change. 
You have relationships, they change. Your body, it changes. Just wait for you young people. (laughs) It gets weird. Everything around us is constantly changing. And if we want to go science on this, entropy is a real thing, and it typically, in just about every case, goes from a state of better to a state of worse. Right? It's always changing. So the idea that we're dealing with a being, a creator, a God, a savior in Jesus who never changes, that, that's hard for us to understand. That's why it's incommunicable. Because you're not going to experience that concept in your entire life outside of Trinitarian theology. Because it doesn't exist anywhere else. So for us, it's not experiential except in looking at the person of Jesus. He never changes. So why why is this even practical for us? Because when Jesus says, I love you, he always will. When Jesus says, I'm for you, he always will be. When Jesus says, I have set up this salvific system of taking you from dirty, rotten sinner to inheriting kingdom, that will always be. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that will always be. It doesn't evolve. That's it. And it has to be or God can't be who he claims to be. If God's constantly changing his mind or constantly moving things or constantly saying, okay, well, you know what? Salvation was based on this back then, but I know culture changes and ideas change and people want to do different things, so I'll make some flexibility for that over here. He's no longer God. Because as soon as God loses his attributes that he's told us that he has, he's no longer who he says he is. The immutability of God himself is one of the most comforting components of knowing creator. Because you never have to guess. He says it, and it never changes. This idea that we struggle grasping that We struggle grasping it in daily life because it's not what we necessarily experience is one of the things that makes God so great for us. It's one of the things that creates so much assurance that no matter what happens to you in a temporary time frame, no matter what happens to you in a temporary relationship, no matter what happens to you as a temporary parent, no matter what happens to you as a temporary employee. The gospel is immutable. It's why, you know, I listen to people and they'll say, I've had somebody say this, hopefully not to me as much, but I've heard it said, where they're like, you've stolen my joy today. And I'm like, wow, your joy's not grounded in anything really good then. There's a, we we spend time talking about the difference between joy and happiness on a a regular basis because it's such an important concept for us to grasp. And this is what I want you to understand. I won't go into it again, but joy in Christ is immutable. Meaning it's not circumstantial because it's grounded in something that never changes. So my joy is grounded in Jesus and knowing that no matter what happens in temporary life, that his word is always there and always true and always sustaining and always perfect and never changes. Therefore, 
how do we lose our joy? The only way we lose joy is if our joy is grounded in something that isn't immutable and the only thing that, that would be anything else, basically. <laughs> right? It's why when we look in Scripture and we see people who are going through horrific things still praise the Lord. Because they're not looking at what's around them temporarily. They're looking at what never changes. If, if the church, the universal body of Jesus, just grasps this concept to its greatest degree, everything would change. And I won't even say like, oh, we would change the world because we, we, we would. But everything inside you would change. Can you imagine living a life where no matter what happens to you on this earth, you can actually look at Jesus and go, it doesn't matter. Because I have him. I have a friend, and I haven't told this story in a while, and there's so many new people. I have a friend, his name is Krem, and we actually support his church in Turkey. He's in Antalya, Turkey, and he trains pastors, and he plants churches, and he does a lot of um, transcribing into the Turkish language from English because they don't have a whole lot. Right? And uh, he tells a story about, he probably hyped me, hyped me telling this story, but I think it's just so cool. He tells a story about like, going through some trouble and being like, abducted at one point. And so shrouds on his head, off he goes, and they get to some place and they pull him out of the car and they take the shroud off and they threaten him. Either stop preaching the gospel or we will kill you. Anybody had this happen before? Just curious. Um, that's stress. And Pastor Krem's response was looking them dead in the eye. You can't threaten me with glory. Process that for just a moment. You can't threaten me with glory. Hey, what is he saying? He says, the worst thing that you can do to me physically is kill me. And now you're just sending me right to where I want to be. So death is no threat to me. There's no threat. And I've said this before, and somebody has said, like, that was really insensitive. Well, fine. It's still true. The worst thing somebody can do to you is kill you. And if you know Jesus, you'll be glory. It's all grounded on that understanding that he never changes. Last thing I want to say about this, because I think it's probably one of the most relevant, is when one of the most, I guess, complex or debated, and I don't understand why, but debated um, theological concepts in Scripture is this idea of can I lose my salvation or not? Right? It's like, what does it really take? Like, I've put my faith and trust in Jesus, and Scripture says that as a result, I am saved, that I'm adopted, that I'm inherited, that the Holy Spirit enters me, that I'm sealed. But Kevin, at what point do I have this? Do, how about this one? At what point do I come such a disappointment to God that he goes, I don't really want you in my family anymore. Like, off you go. And I've thought about living this way. I, I've thought, what would it look like if you actually believed that? What would it look like if your salvation wasn't assured permanently? How, how would you know? Like, is that sin that I just committed, is that thought that I just processed through, is that dream that I just had while I was sleeping, is that conversation that I just had that was unholy, does that meet the standard by which now God goes, that's enough? And then if that's true, then what do I do to get it back? 
What do I have to accomplish? Like, what, what works do I need to, to do? And, and we have so much religious history of individuals who attempt to take this idea of, I've lost my salvation and I need to earn it back. And we've seen things like mutilation of bodies. And, and I mean, I, it wasn't when we first moved here, I, I went up to what's considered a holy site here in East Boston to this, I call it the idol, this Mary that sits up on the hill. And I was watching two women crawl on this thing with their knee, to this thing with their knees bleeding. I'm crying. So I'm going, who told you? The idea of the immunability and the permanency of, of Jesus and, and the gospel and all that we've just been talking about. Do you really think that if God saves you that you have it within you to discredit that? And if you get salvation by placing your faith and trust in Jesus, and it's nothing that you've done, it's nothing that you've earned, it's nothing that you can achieve, we'll say it's simple as if we're talking to a child, right? It's free. It costs you nothing, but will cost you everything. And then, then as I sin, there's things that I have to do to maintain it, then doesn't that become salvation based on me and not Jesus anymore? See, I don't know why this is a debated issue. If your salvation is dependent upon you from the beginning, then we're in trouble. I would have lost this so many times. My, my testimony, I came to faith in Jesus at a younger age, and let's just say I was 10. At age 10 to now I'm, f how old am I? 48? Do you know how much sin has transpired in Kevin from 10 to 48? A lot. A lot. So, well then what do you do? Well, I repent and I ask the Holy Spirit to help me live a life that's glorifying to Jesus in those specific ways. And then I accept his forgiveness because it's always given. The immutability the fact that he never changes, the fact that G the gospel is always there, it is the most comforting component of the gospel for hum dirty, rotten sinners living in a sin-cursed temporary world that we can ever imagine. Jesus didn't just die for the sins that you committed prior to coming to faith in him, he's already died for the sins that you're going to commit in your future. It's, it's unfathomable. Imagine a marriage that functioned like that. They're supposed to, but they don't. Because <laughs> we're dirty, rotten sinners living in a sinker's world. But imagine a marriage that would function like that. Or a friendship. Hey, I love you so much that no matter what you do to me, forgiveness in me is always offered. It's always going to be given. It's always there. I'm not going to hold an account. It's just always there. He'd be like, I'm in. Right? You don't realize that's what Jesus does. This makes him a little bit bigger than angels. <laughs> I have really good material. 
Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your seat. Okay, so there's a passage of Scripture, and I, I, I believe that Tony mentioned this when he preached a couple of weeks ago, and he, it was so perfect in how he was applying it. And I want to just enhance that just a hair because he wasn't talking about angels. It says in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 9, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is a gold mine for theologians. Um, we, we start with this idea of the kenosis, which is a fancy word for helping us understand how Jesus is both God and man at the same time and what that looked like to the best of our ability to understand it. And then it moves into this understanding that he loved us so much that, and he wanted to obey the Father so much that he took himself even to death at the point of the cross, that, that obedience. And then it kind of translates into, I'm doing this for those who are mine. And it describes in very strong theological terminology how the gospel works from a kind of legalistic perspective. And then it moves into this passage where it's describing as Jesus has fulfilled this, like Tony made a very great statement when he said, this idea that Jesus was sitting helps us understand that what he had accomplished in the gospel was complete. Accurate. But he's seated, crowned. King Jesus sits on the throne. You often wonder why like, worship songs often mention King Jesus because that's who he is. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, crowned. He's king. He, he's there. And this passage of Scripture describes that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is king. Now, why will they do that? Because he's king. It's true. The one who wears the crown is king. But this is where it gets crazy. It doesn't just stop there. It wants to make sure, the author of Philippians wants us to understand that this isn't just this idea that, oh, well, Jesus is king and it's temporary and there he is. He wants, us to, take it, he wants to take it further by saying that every knee will bow, whether they're in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. What does that mean? It means that every human being who has ever been created from the beginning of time till Jesus' return will one day claim Jesus is king. That just gives me chills. Because you realize what's happening here. Those who are in heaven already know that Jesus is king because they declared it in their lives on earth. Everyone on the earth. I don't know exactly what that means, and we can debate it, and we can go through it, and it's really fun. But at some point, I'm assuming whether that means Jesus has come back and they're here for a little while, whatever's happening, they're going to declare that Jesus is king. Why? However you end with it, Jesus comes back crowned and he's coming back different than he came the first time. It looks a little different. Same person looks a little different. You want a description? You can read some of the, uh, some of the end time stuff. But then here's the big one. The people that are under the earth. People that are under the earth are the individuals who refuse to declare Jesus as king in their life. And it says that one day they will bow in hell declaring that king, that Jesus is king to their own detriment. So this is what the picture that, that I see. I see you got these three people, right? And I'm, I'm very visual. So I go, okay, you've got these guys up here. 
and they know Jesus is king, and like the angels are declaring Jesus is king constantly. And then you have these people in the middle, and regardless of where they're at, they're hitting their knees, declaring that Jesus is crowned king. And then you have the individuals who hated Jesus, rejected Jesus, are being punished for not declaring Jesus as king, determining that they're going to come up with their own way outside of Jesus, not saved, however you want to define that, are literally going to be in hell on their knees declaring King Jesus to be true. That's intense. Do you realize, like, I want this picture to sink in. They're going, hell is described in Scripture as a place of torment and a place that human beings are not necessarily supposed to go, but are, will, outside of Christ. And it says it will be a miserable place. And in their misery, I would think one of the most miserable components of history, of eternity for them, will be they'll be on their knees seeing Jesus as king and having to declare that out loud, knowing that their denial of him is why they're being punished. Jesus will not be denied his authority or his kingship by any created being ever. Amen. <laughs> yeah, amen. That, <laughs> that's the savior of the world. His, his kingdom, his kingship, is not determined by how many people are saved. It's not determined by a committee coming together and say, we vote for Jesus. There's not gonna be people wearing vote for Pedro shirts, like vote for Jesus shirts walking around. It's not campaigned. It's not a democracy. Jesus isn't gonna care what your opinion is at all. You're not even going to be able to stand before him and think that you have an opinion. It's a monarchy, kingship. And it's beautiful. And in Christ, we experience the beauty of his kingdom. When I go back to Jesus' prayer, when he says, Lord, as on earth as it is in heaven, what is he saying? He's saying, look, I've got people here who understand. I have people on the planet currently who declare Jesus as king, and yeah, they live in sin-cursed bodies, and they live in sin-cursed world, and they're constantly making mistakes, but they understand, they're, they're supposed to understand wholeheartedly that they're forgiven, and that they're valuable, and that they're loved, and that they're indestructible. That their joy can remain regardless of the trials and the tribulations of the world, that no problem can outweigh the joy of the gospel. And because of that, they have the ability in the midst of so much pain and struggle and suffering, to display the love of Jesus in ways that nobody can possibly understand. And in doing so, almost to this very small, minute point, represent heaven on earth. That is what the disciple of Jesus is supposed to be doing. We're not just buying time, we're on mission. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The author is specifically saying to no angel will this ever be said. To no one else who is, to nothing else that's ever been created will this ever be said. There's only one king. Hail King Jesus. 
to close out his point, he asks a question. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I mean, in this deep theological treaty of who Jesus is, compared to something spiritual, everything that I've just described is an attempt to help you go, what is it that you see as spiritual that's better than Jesus? That's been the whole point. Like, who else matches this description? And if, if it's only Jesus, then why would we put our attention on anything else? Spiritual. What does a rock that you wear around your neck have to do with anything compared to Jesus? What does this idea of angelic beings being around and knowing that they're fighting crazy battles like we described last week, have, how does that even compare to what I've just described Jesus being? Oh, I'm spiritual, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I don't know what that means. Jesus supersedes all spirituality, supersedes all religion, and he's King Jesus. And he declares truth. So to put the nail in the coffin, the author's like, okay, let me ask you the question now. And it's a very similar question to what I just asked. And this is the question. If Jesus is King, which he is, and Jesus is who he says that he is, and he is, and you know him, then when we look at something like an angel, isn't, isn't the angel this just there to help Jesus accomplish that which he's trying to do for those who he is going to save? So why would we worship that? Why would we put anything between us and Jesus? He's saying, look, let's, let's, let's really understand what's happening here. The angels aren't... aren't these created beings that Jesus died for, they're just there. They're servants. They're doing what they're told to do when they're told to do it. And they're there, it says, according to Scripture, to help minister to you. This is why we don't revere them or worship them. In fact, I think it would be in fact, I, we have stories of this, but it would be horrific if you actually came in contact with an angel and attempted to worship it. Do you know what the angel would do? Uh, no. Clearly, you don't understand who actually King Jesus is. We have a story in Scripture where the disciples attempted to do something like this. The Mount of Transfiguration, do you remember this? If you grew up in, in church world, you do, where Jesus takes his three closest friends up to this place and they get on a mountaintop and some crazy stuff starts to happen. Right? And we got Moses and Elijah there. And Peter, it's always Peter. <laughs> Peter's like, this is so cool. Like, let's set up a tent for Moses and let's set up a tent for Elijah. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> And let's just stay here. And Jesus is like, man, you just don't get it. <laughs> you just don't get it. Like Moses and Elijah, man, they're cool. I hope I get to have a conversation with them someday. But do you know what that conversation is going to be about? I have all these ideas about like what that conversation is going to be. Like, why did you do this? And what was this decision about? And what fiery chariot, what the heck was that about? Describe this thing to me. He's probably just going to be like, it's over there. You can check a look at it. <laughs> but they're going to be like, you're missing it. It's about Jesus. So many, you think about all the theological questions that you have. All the doubts, all the fears, all the misunderstandings. It's like, I, I, I don't understand these things. And I would challenge you to say, if you understood everything, then we have a problem. Because trying to understand an infinite God. But we have all of these things, and, and I think, if you remember the story of, and it was preached on recently, Pastor Matt did it, 
And while he was preaching, I was, I was processing this because it was the story of the disciples, some two disciples, two individuals walking with Jesus and they don't know it's Jesus, but they see him as a holy man. And, and I'm thinking, if I was walking with somebody like that, what questions would I want to ask? And here's the thing that's fascinating is Jesus doesn't answer any questions that would be confusing to an individual. He doesn't even attempt. Do you know what he says? He says, let me show you in the all of the places that I exist in the Old Testament. And Matt gave an entire sermon on that. You should listen to it. It was awesome. Why would he do that? Because the rest of it doesn't really matter. What matters most is King Jesus. So I'm going to phrase this question a little bit different and then we'll come to a close here. There's some things that you have in your life that aren't necessarily bad things that you've elevated up. They may not have reached idol status yet, but they're there. Some of them may have reached idol status. Some of you are holding on to things like traditions and um, maybe little trinkets or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what religious belief system you've come back, you know, come out of or you're investigating or whatever it is. But how have those things, whether it be a person, a circumstance, a thing, contributed to your salvation? And what you're going to tell me is they haven't. And I really break it down, they haven't. I'm like, oh, that's okay. So now let me ask you this question. (laughs) Have you elevated those things above King Jesus? How's it gone? At the end of the day, the purpose of a disciple of Jesus is to, in our current time frame in this temporary world is to constantly say, what is it that I'm putting above King Jesus? What is it that I'm putting above King Jesus that he knew I was going to put above him and that he already died for and that I need to repent over so that I can know Jesus better? Spirituality in our culture is one of the biggest traps that I have seen in a long time. And it's, once again, Kevin, you're insensitive, maybe, but I'm just going to tell you it's foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. Everything that has been described about Jesus here breaks it down into what the gospel actually is. That this person, God, that I described loves you so much that he came and (laughs) lived the life you were supposed to live, died the death you deserve, conquered sin, Satan, and death forever. And he says, I want you with me. Why? Don't know. But that's what he says. And he says, I've already done it. So there's a couple of groups of people in here, just categorized just to help, but for some of you, you're here and you're like, man, I've never really grabbed hold of the gospel. Maybe you've never heard it this way, maybe you've never understood it, but it's, it's as simple as this. Like, Jesus is king. And we live in a temporary world. And every person that you will ever come in contact with is a dirty, rotten sinner who deserves eternity away from God. And the end result of every single person's life is that because there's nothing that we can do as created beings that will impress the God that I just described. What are you really going to do? 
Can you imagine standing before this God and going, let me tell you about all the things I did for you and in this dirty, rotten world? And he's going to be like, all right, let me tell you all the things I did. Let's really compare. I'm not impressed. (laughs) At the moment of judgment, we have two options. I don't know that I've ever described this in a sermon this way, but I will because I've described it to kids this way. You have two options. You're going to stand before the king of the universe with your own works in hand, or you're going to stand in front of the king of the universe declaring his works in hand. That's really all it boils down to. If you've never declared his works, if you're attempting to earn it, if you're looking for what components of spirituality will get you there, if you're still saying, I'm trying to find myself, you don't need to find yourself. You just need to give your life to Jesus. He'll tell you who you are. He created you. If that's you, you have the ability at any point until you die to say, I want that. I prefer to stand before Jesus saying, I'm declaring your truth and your grace and your power and your works over mine because mine are worthless. And you can do that. Every week I say this. You can come talk to me. You can turn to the person next to you and say, do you know Jesus? And they say, yes. Say, can we, can we talk? All it takes is taking everything that you're trusting in right now and putting it on Christ alone. And when that happens, the question that's asked, are they, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who what? Who are to inherit salvation that moment, you're adopted. And nothing can ever remove it. Not you. Not the world. For the church, the other category of people, it's, it's us as individuals that say we understand the gospel. We We know that Jesus is king and all this boils down to in the book of Hebrews is what are you placing above him? What have you done to replace Jesus? Are you living with the weight of the world on your shoulders? Because that's not Jesus. Are you living in lies constantly telling you how horrible you are? The enemy's interesting. And most of the time when I say the enemy, I'm talking about our own sinful nature. Because we lie to ourselves that we're not good enough and then we'll do something that we shouldn't do and then we'll take ourselves down instead of just going, wait, this has already been paid for. All I have to do is take it to Jesus. There's no condemnation in Christ. We take it to Jesus. We take it to the King. We take it to the one who actually did something about it. Some of you are living with, well, I'm just not good enough, so let me just explain this to you. You're not, and you never will be. I'm not, and I never will be. That's not the point. If you think that's the point, you've missed it. The whole reason that King Jesus did what he did is because no one's good enough. Some of you need to live in the joy of Christ because honestly, I watch you walking around and you're miserable human beings. (laughs) Stop looking at each other. (laughs) And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Well, the weight of the world. I understand the weight of the world. I feel it too. And sometimes I'm a miserable human being. And do you know what I need to hear? Jesus isn't sweating this. Be joyful. Nobody wants to be around somebody like that. Oh, I'm a Christ follower. Great, you're miserable. Why would I want anything to do with Jesus? If you as a Christ follower handle everything the same way that people do around you, you're not applying the gospel. We live in a city where less than 2% of people claim to know Jesus. 
which means if you're meeting the other 98% and you're doing it the exact same way, problem. That's not Jesus. Every week we take communion, right? And every week is an opportunity for us as a church to say, Lord, I know who you are. I know what you've done. And I need help applying it. And the only place that it can possibly get applied is by getting the grace of the gospel in my life in areas that it's not. And so some of you, you just need to go, you know what? I need more joy in my life. Some of you need to say, you know what? I need to do some repenting. Some of you just need to be, wow. That's why I say every time we take communion, it's going to look different for every person. What is the Holy Spirit doing in you? Last comment. Church. Imagine with me a church. I don't know this one. In a city. I don't know this one. That understood at a core that Jesus sits on the throne is king, is sovereign, never changes, always loves you, desires to be close to you, invites you to know more about him every day, offers you opportunities to watch him work on a daily basis, invites you to join him in seeing lives changed in seeing his kingdom enhanced and increased all over the world for every country, every nation, every people group. Imagine a church that takes all of the pettiness of this world and looks at each other and says, I love you in Christ and we're walking this journey together in joy and gratitude and love. And imagine what that would look like. It's possible. It's possible. But what would change? Everything. This church is temporary. Jesus is eternal. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, in the encouragement of understanding who you are, it's always coming with difficulty. So Lord, just in in this church, I... Lord, even I, I don't understand it all. I don't understand perfectly your immutability. I don't understand something that doesn't change. I don't understand that kind of love and loyalty and assurance. I don't know why you would want to do that for me. But I believe you. And Lord, the only thing that makes sense in me is to say it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with Jesus. And so I pray that that would be my focus and the focus of every single Christ follower in this room. Lord, whatever we're holding on to that isn't drawing us to King Jesus, that isn't enhancing our relationship with King Jesus, that is actually pulling us away from King Jesus, Lord, would you remove it Would you help us repent? Would you remind us of the joy that is awaiting us with it gone? Lord, we believe you when you say that your burden is light. So Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who knows you, who is experiencing overwhelming burden in this sin-cursed world, in this sin-cursed life, Lord, that you would relieve them of it in the name of King Jesus. Lord, I pray for any person in this room 
who doesn't declare you as king. Lord, I beg you, I beg you, Lord, regenerate their heart. Lord, remove that heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, help them to see that their entire purpose of being is to bring King Jesus glory. Lord, bring him to that place. Relieve them of the burden of the works that they're trying to accomplish that they believe are good. Free them, Father. Lord, as we partake in communion, I just ask right now that your Holy Spirit in the life of your people would speak very clearly and remind us that the only hope that we have is in Christ. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.